0: Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Trials with Maya Z, brought to you by TrialHub, a data intelligence platform that helps clinical research organizations and sponsors plan clinical trials. This podcast is about how we can make clinical trials more successful and patient-friendly. I am your host, Maya Z, and in every episode, I will be interviewing a leading expert from various industries in order to discuss some of the major challenges and brainstorm how we can solve them. Let's get started. Hello everyone. It's Maya again from Charles with Maya and today I have a very good friend of mine joining me in a very interesting conversation, Raymond from Creo Clinical Research. Raymond is another entrepreneur, founder and CEO of Creo Clinical Research with a great background in clinical research, but Raymond, tell us more about yourself.
1: Yes, thank you. My name is Raymond Omizu. I co-founded CREO back in 2015 after having run and operated a clinical research site. I'm a lawyer by training, never really practiced that long, jumped into the the business side, was in management consulting for a long number of years and had a lot of experience consulting companies on strategy and process. I like to think that I have a bit of an outsider-insider perspective on clinical research. I have a foundation and process design and and strategy outside the industry. But then when I acquired a clinical research site in 2012, that's when I became an insider and really learned the clinical trial business from the ground up, really understanding things from the site perspective mainly. And since then, I pretty much tried to learn as many perspectives uh, as I can in this industry.
0: Thanks, Raymond. I remember when we first met, that was a few years ago. It was right after the pandemic started. And actually it was you and me and two other friends of ours, like having these conversations, what do we do next? How do we overcome the COVID-19 situation? What can we do to support the industry? So it was quite a lot of fun. And I remember from our conversations, you always bring this perspective from the sites. I know you, you own the site and La Creo is working quite a lot with sites. I know that you're in the middle of the storm and right now there is a storm, not only now, but in the last couple of years, but especially in the last couple of months, everyone's screaming, do something. We need to support the sites when there are plenty of solutions and technologies and so on and so forth, but we keep screaming, help the site. So Raymond, tell me what yes. is actually happening from your perspective?
1: Thank you. Excellent question. So I think this is the blind spot in the industry. And it's what I saw when I was running a site clinical trials, I mean, they are extremely enormously complex. Every protocol is different from another protocol. Every aspect of running a clinical trial is different from study to study, from the way vitals are taken, to the way ECGs are taken, to what labs are taking to all the eligibility criteria. It's an enormous amount of complexity. And historically, sites have not had great automation to manage that kind of complexity. And yet, If the sites are not equipped or capable of managing clinical trials, what happens? What happens is quality suffers. There are protocol deviations. There are kappa plans put in place. Monitoring becomes extensive, right? So you start to hear this horror stories of, oh, wow, we have to send another monitor over there. Oh, this monitor wasn't able to get everything done in that eight-hour day. Let's go back and send three more monitors in two weeks. And, oh, wow, the PI hasn't logged in for two months. Let's (laughs) figure out what's holding up the, the closeout of the trial. So all the problems accrued to the sponsors. And I know that there was a sentiment three years ago, maybe during the COVID pandemic, that perhaps we could get away with the sites. We might be able to go right to the patient. Well, no, that's not realistic because ultimately you still need a PI. So whether it's a fully virtual trial or a physical trial, you still need a PI to provide local oversight. And from a regulatory perspective, we really do want the PI to be independent of the sponsor, right? So you have to have this layer of locally entrenched, and we're still finding that you still need that physical site, you still need that physical presence. You need that investigator site that's independent, that has a direct relationship with the patient. So the industry spent a lot of energy and resources trying to disintermediate the sites only to conclude, hey, you know, actually we do need sites. And what have you been doing with sites, right, for the past 30, 40 years, right? Giving them enormously complex protocols, giving them lots of tools and technologies that you know, someone else is choosing, right? for the duration of that study, which may or may not align with site workflows. And even this movement towards DCT added to the complexity, right? And so the sites have to juggle all this complexity. So of course they're struggling, right? So I can go on and on, and on but I think that's, a, that's the core problem with this industry. And that's what Creo was set up to do is to address this by giving the sites that kind of end-to-end automation that makes them run efficiently embeds quality at point of capture, right? And now with Creo, we can actually start to tackle some of these problems that the industry has been struggling with for years.
0: That's great. And I'd love to learn more about it. Uh, But before that, because like I said, plenty of solutions out there and technologies, and you mentioned something that is very key here. So I'll bring you back to that. You you said someone else chooses the solutions of the sites. Uh, And I know exactly what you mean. Literally sponsors or CROs choosing the type of technologies and solutions that the site is then supposed to use during the clinical trial. That usually results into sites having to use multiple solutions at the same time because they have different trials. So I understand the rationale behind the site must choose their own solutions, and it should be probably one or two solutions for all of the trials that they're managing and that definitely provides better convenience. But how is that possible from the sponsor's uh, point of view? Like, have you thought about that?
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's the core problem. The way we view it at Creo is we're going to focus on what we do best. We're going to make our platform interoperable and we're going to build APIs, data information exchanges with other systems. We're starting with EPO right now. We are very interested in sending it up for labs. We're very interested in sending it up with IRTs. We can extend it to wearables. But basically the idea here is that If we can start building partnerships with other e-clinical vendors, we can then go to sponsors and said, hey, for your trial, here's a group of e-clinical vendors that you can work with that work with our technology. And by partnering with them and with us, we can collectively deliver a solution for you because what we can do is we can close the last mile. So there's no reason why we can be a better e vendor. We're a site-facing or desktop tablet-oriented technology. And when there's a non-compliance event or a safety event or some type of an event that comes from the ePro that requires site follow-up, right? How is that done right now in the industry? The ePro vendor will simply send an email or text message to the coordinator or say, hey, log into the portal, right? So that's yet another login, right? And then the coordinators have all these logins for that study and they're busy. And what makes it worse is that the site management, they actually don't know that there's an alert. They don't actually know that there's a fault. Why? Because when I was a site director, I wasn't on the DOA log for all these trials, right? I actually wasn't allowed to go into the EPO. So if, if somebody didn't follow up, if somebody didn't comply, if the patient wasn't complying with the EPO requirements for a trial, which by the way, can make or break randomization. I didn't know that as a site director, right? I knew conceptually that maybe they're in the run-in period and there's a certain minimum compliance requirement. So I could create a workaround where I could say to the coordinator, hey, your job is to go into the portal and, and report back to me. But I didn't have the tools or the information to enforce compliance, you know, at the coordinator at the site level, where I could make sure that the people would actually follow up, right? Because that's the key, right? You want the site to follow up with a patient to ensure compliance. That's what's missing in the industry. is that sort of closing at last mile. So the way we're going to build our EPRO uh, integration is that we're going to ideally we want the sites to basically provision the EPRO from within CREO. When EPRO says, hey, there's been a non-compliance event, site follow-up, we want to send the message to CREO. We can create a workflow. And the site management will know that there's an event. There's an action that requires follow-up by the site staff. And then we're going to create a workflow and we're going to allow the site staff to resolve each of those issues as they come in. And what that does is it provides full transparency for the site. Right now, site directors, site leadership now are empowered to actually deliver on the quality. And that addresses one of the weaknesses of this industry, which is a lot of sponsors say, hey, I've got these KPIs, right? Like one of the KPIs is patient retention or, you know, uh, compliance with EPA, right? That's actually one of the KPIs, right? Well, the site directors don't know those KPIs. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen an industry where you work with another vendor and you have KPIs, but you keep it secret
0: <laughs>
1: from the leadership of that vendor.
0: You think it's a secret, actually, or it's just a lack of communication, because I don't yeah, it, think it's like a real secret.
1: No, it's not deliberate, right? De facto, that's how it ends up. So you're not giving the management of the vendor your scorecard that you're holding them accountable for. And so that's where Creo can solve this problem. So rather than being an E-Pro vendor, we want to create that e workflow, right? So we can close yeah. that last mile and make that EPro more effective, right? Mm-hmm. And have that last loop there. And that's that concept, and I can go on each one of these vendors, that we want to extend this to so that we can have a site-facing platform with all the automation from end to end, and yet the sponsors can still pick the E-Pro elements, the wearable elements, tie it into the site workflow and get a better result.
0: Okay. It will be like a key to other E-Pro vendors. Okay. But let me challenge you here. Does this mean that you have to literally go and work with all the E-Pro vendors and they have to customize their solutions to fit your solution as well? How would that work?
1: Yeah. So the way we want to work with other vendors is we want to have a point of view about the workflow, right? It starts with Mm -hmm. our workflow. It should allow the sites to do what they need to do. It should allow the vendors to do what they need to do. And we need to articulate that workflow. And the e vendors that we work with, that we partner with, should be willing to work within that framework. If they're not, then it doesn't make sense for us to support the integration, just for the sake of an integration. Rather than have, if we had, say, 10 partners, ePro partners, just make up a number, rather than have 10 different ways of working together, what we want is one core workflow, right? I'm sure there's going to be some yeah. variations, whatever. But okay. we want to be able to go to a sponsor and say, regardless of which one of these 10 ePro vendors you pick, they're going to interact with Creo in fundamentally the same way so that you get the assurance that there's a complete workflow solution that works for the sites so you get the compliance that you want. Um, and we can take that. You don't have to worry about the inner workings of the integration, right? We certify to you that we've tested in the sandbox that it works that the integration works according to you know the workflow that we've envisioned. So the only way the integration works is if one party kind of takes yeah. the lead and saying this is how you're going to operate with us. And I think if we can get a group of e-clinical vendors together on a platform and we work together, then I think we can have huge value delivery.
0: And what happens if the site works with another automation tool then?
1: We actually are open to integrations with other site tools. So we have already started the... Uh, journey to integrate with EMR systems. We actually can now ingest medical records, right, from any, at least in America, with any hospital health system that's connected to the health information exchange. And we want right. to take that to the next level, that, that care integration. We, we are willing to work with other e-clinical vendors that meet site requirements as long as we kind of articulate those workflows. There is sort of one element of our strategy where we do want to be proprietary, right? That's the, the clinical data captured by the sites. Uh, we don't want to negotiate with that, right? That's the yeah. essence of what we do, right? But with that as kind of the basis of what we do, do we have to be the vendor that the site uses for accounting or financial collections? No, we don't have okay. to. Do we have to be the scheduling app that they use to schedule appointments? No, we don't really have hmm. to. Okay. Um, we just have to integrate and interoperate.
0: So you see yourself as the ultimate collaborator, the one that builds the partnership. You have this core that you know you're the best at, and then everything else can be worked through partnerships and collaborations. Wouldn't that make you something like a marketplace then? Yes. Another question then, Raymond, you mentioned the the EMRs and Mm -hmm. that it's only for the states. Actually, that's one of the biggest issues that I see. Providers focusing only on the United States. And not necessarily be able to provide a solution from outside of the States. And we all know that in most cases, phase two, not to speak about phase three clinical trials, they become global. Mm -hmm. Can such a partnership type of approach, can it like scale on a global global level as well?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And the way we handle global geographies is we have a a regional server. We have one in the EU. We have one for Asia-Pac and we can spin up new servers. So the idea here is that we can keep the PHI localized, which addresses a huge regulatory concern. We can then interoperate with other vendors. Obviously they have to be GBR compliant, but I know on our end, we can absolutely serve global trials. The way our system works and the way our delivery model works for sponsors is that the configuration of the study template, if you're using our eSource CDC solution, is global. There's one template. You can have multiple language versions of that, but it's no different than having a V1, a V1A, V1B, V1C. You can push the different versions to the different sites around the world. When the sites collect the data, we will send that data, even if they're across different regions, into one regional server in the United States, which is on an anonymized basis. So PHI never crosses geographic lines. And then the sponsors can review that data pretty much in real time across the globe. So we've already set up the global infrastructure. It's already there. And so I think we have something already that's scalable, and we can already service global trials today. But that hopefully that addresses your question.
0: Yeah, and I guess that the next step would be to identify these local champions of so these other solutions, basically, that yeah. can provide the other piece of the puzzle. That and you can connect and then work together.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's hard. We have a lot of. Adoption in the United States among US sites, Australia, obviously the English speaking countries, but it's it's obviously been harder for us to generate adoption in particularly non English speaking countries and Mm -hmm. some countries with lower budgets because of our price points. So, what we've had success with and we're rolling out is the concept of finding local sites and site networks that adopt our technology in a region and then having them be essentially resellers for our technology. So, we've had huge success with that model in brazil for instance because we have an amazing partner in brazil who's done a great job servicing other sites and site networks and and the economics have to work for both parties but we definitely could see ourselves expanding through that model
0: i hope you're enjoying this episode if you find this topic relevant you'll find it helpful to book a demo with our team on trialhub.com since 2019, we've supported more than 3,000 clinical trials with country, site, and patient feasibility. We'd love to show you how and help you get your trial right from the start. And now, back to my guests. I wonder now, like in Europe, for example, you have these hospitals, these medical centers, that are also a site. So where do you see that is the future of sites?
1: I think we're always going to have Essentially two different kinds of sites. and my mind, I kind of simplistically divide into AMCs and hospitals that are like AMCs and behavior that primarily focus on their own patients versus, I would say, private research sites, community physicians, maybe smaller healthcare practices that are a little bit more nimble. i an entrepreneurial about this. I think on the latter side with sites and community physicians, where we've had most of our Early adoption We're starting to get a, a lot of interest from AMCs, but in that latter group, I am definitely seeing a trend towards network consolidation, just because there's tremendous efficiencies. And I think what's going to happen is that it's very hard for a small physician practice just to adopt research. It, it's a very different workflow, right? This critical scale yeah. issues, is hard to build up a study pipeline. And so I think what's going to happen is you're going to have the emergence of those um, networks that can partner with those physician practices and stand up research. So. I think you're going to have both models for a while, and I think it depends on, for each trial, where the patient population is, right? So oncology, particularly late stage, is going to be give much more to the AMCs, maybe some of the rare diseases, but any indication or chronic disease that's more community-based, I mean, that's where the sites can really excel. So what I've seen when I looked at the data is, if you look at the site selection, it, it, it's almost bimodal. It tends to be either AMC-centric or sort of site small doctor centric.
0: And do they require completely different solutions, in your opinion? I
1: think the core solutions are very similar, but there are some differences in features. But I think the big difference for the AMCs is that a lot of them are going to want some kind of integration with the EMR system. And that's going to be the next stage of our journey is how do we really take research and integrate it with care at the provider level? Yeah. and that's actually going to be a p- big differentiator for Korea, right? We we all know EMR systems are opening up now. There's a lot of yeah. EMR to EDC like integrations and all of that, right? But think about an EDC; they can't have PHI. They're not a provider tool, right? So the integrations are extremely limited, right? It's just grabbing a data point and sending it in. We are a site facing tool. We are a tool that that is absolutely 100% free to use PHI. That's basically a private sort of site-facing workflow tool. And what we do is we can take medical record EMR data and we can ingest that data. And then we can allow the principal investigator to curate that data, reconcile that data, review the data, do some kind of a workflow where there's PI review of that data and curation Mm -hmm. before it goes into the official study record, where it then becomes visible to the sponsor, either Mm -hmm. directly through our application or through transmission to the sponsor facing Upon um, reviewer applications. So that's a piece that's missing because it's very hard to just blindly insert EMR into the yeah. data because it very rarely maps one to one. Almost always, you're paying a principal investigator to curate and interpret the medical records, right? So I think what we do and what we bring to the table is the ability to give that investigative site that kind of research oriented tool, right, that can integrate freely with their EMR system and allow them to curate and reconcile. So the real data flow should be EMR to site source, and then to the sponsor system. It has to have, you can think of it as a pit stop or a middleware, I don't care what you call yeah, it, yeah, it. Have yeah, yeah. a stop within the site-facing system.
0: I think that should be the requirement because you mentioned something that I'm not quite sure I agree. You mentioned that uh, medical records are more accessible now. I mean, they are, but I don't think that in the future they will be. I mean, at least I'm not sure that they're a hundred percent sure. If you see different trends in different parts of the world in some countries, though, we were expecting more access to medical records. They actually tighten the, yeah. the regulations. And it's becoming even harder to get access to these records. So I wonder what will happen worldwide, like even in the state. I wonder if one day people will just go out and say, hey, I no longer want my record to be accessed and so on and so forth. And probably what you're doing with this middle stop is some sort of an insurance that your record doesn't go to just someone, but your doctor reviews that and only when they think that record is actually that patient is a patient that might benefit. From learning more about the trial, being qualified, going through a screening visit, and so on and so forth, only then they should go to the next final stop, let's say sponsor or whoever. Yeah. So it makes sense uh to have this definitely. And I have one other um question. Uh you mentioned the the communities, uh the community hospitals, uh, and you mentioned that it will be very hard for them to start be- like to become clinical research, let's say centers. And I understand your rationale, basically, on top of your head is, how do I scale that to the business? How do I get more, more studies, et cetera, et cetera? But what about just being a community? I mean, is that even possible? Do, do doctors think in that way? I'm not looking into building this as a business. I just want to make sure that my patients can also benefit clinical trials.
1: Oh, yeah, completely. Totally, absolutely. And that's why if you ha- are a physician and you have a core business in healthcare and a patient base... You don't need the same revenue hurdle, right, to have a clinical research business be successful. It can be sort of ancillary and you can leverage a lot of those shared costs. Um, But just it's still a hard capability to adopt. There's still a big learning curve. And I think there's huge benefit to partnering with an operator that's knowledgeable about the space that can do the budgets, all of that, so that the two interests are aligned. And I know at least the United States is a big push for diversity in trials and we're not gonna get diversity in trials unless we bring new investigators in. Obviously, if the current investigator mix was servicing diversity, we wouldn't have a diversity shortfall, so we need to bring new investigators into the mix who have access to these populations, but many of them don't have the time or the resources to learn how to do research, because it is complicated, and that's where I think you can have that alliance between those service operators who know how the clinical research component and partner with the physicians. So Now the physicians will have to learn some basic GCP, but now, They can focus on the patient care and doing the PI oversight that they sort of are trained to do, but not have to worry about the administrative aspects of it.
0: Mm. And do you actually plan on expanding in that direction or partner at least with such operators? Actually, it is the site management organizations more or less.
1: It is. It is. And there are clients naturally. And we're not a service business because for us to service Our clients, we have to be neutral and not be a competitor to them. But as a company, we're very committed to this mission of diversity. And we think that our technology is uniquely suited to meet these diversity challenges in partnership with the entrepreneurs, the operators, and the community physicians. And we can't replace the power of a locally embedded, highly empathetic, highly trusted PI, like that's gold, right? Yeah. But we think our technology can be a part of that solution delivery. So we're very active in industry um, consortiums and uh, groups with other stakeholders to make sure that our technology can evolve to meet those requirements.
0: Mm, That's great. And Raymond, I love that you're speaking about collaboration and partnership, because that's something we lack in this industry. More transparency, more collaboration. So it's great that you're going after this and I wish you good luck. And I hope that everyone that that listens to this podcast and has some sort of solution can reach out to you and probably can start thinking about this partnership. You can tell them a little bit more about your plans for expansion. So thanks for sharing this. I have one last question um, because um, I'm trying to collect like different opinions about what is this one thing that can really change the success rate of clinical trials. So if you can think of this one thing, that can change clinical trials, make them more successful. What would that be?
1: So, of course, I'm going to say technology or site facing technology. But I'm, I'm going to I'm I'm going to say I think a, a really important component is the protocol design. Making sure that the eligibility criteria is realistic, mm-hmm. making sure that the protocol, both the eligibility but also the burden on the site and the patient, is realistic and basically. Being able to put yourself in the shoes of the patient and the investigator and saying, how feasible is this? How realistic is this? Because I'm competing against other people's time and what other times there are, what other therapeutic regimens they can do, is this compelling enough? So I think that sort of view and perspective and informing that protocol design, I think that's hugely important and totally underutilized.
0: Thank you for this answer, Raymond. And once again, good luck with what you're building. And yeah, thank you once again for your time and answers.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Hope you enjoyed listening to Trials with Maya Z. If you're interested to hear more about how clinical trials can serve patients globally, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.